visit us at culturedig.com. Join us at facebook.com slash culturedig. And follow us at twitter.com slash culture underscore dig. Google Cabo, Google Cabo. One of us, one of us. Google Cabo. They're going to make you one of them. Culture Dig. What is thy bidding, my master? It's gonna get pretty interesting. Define interest. Oh god, oh god, we're all gonna die? Perhaps today is a good day to die. Someone ever tries to kill you, you try to kill him right back. Control, control, you must be in control. We are controlling transmission. Captain, incoming message. Also, I can kill you with my brain. Make it so. Culture dig. Oh God. Oh, that feels so amazing to say out loud. Hey you guys! <laughs> it's Culture Dig! Episode six. This is the big dig. This is Boo Cha Cha. Who do I got with us? Jimmers. And Jeff. Oh hey there, Jimmers. Oh hey there, Jeff! Fantastic to see you guys today. <laughs> nice Goonies, nice Goonies entrance. Oh yeah, it wasn't nearly slothful enough. But hey, you guys, there, there we go. Yeah, that, that'll work. That'll work. Uh, anyway, we have uh, on the docket today something about the 35th anniversary of one of the greatest horror films ever made, and that's Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, however, before we get into that, Jeffrey, do we have anything in the first things first? Not for me. Not for you, Jimmers. No, um, I'm good. Uh-huh. Guys, uh, this The Shining, uh, we should at first talk about the novel, because the novel does, in fact, precede the film by a good three years. Uh, the novel came out in 1977. It was a Stephen King adaptation uh, that Stanley Kubrick apparently must have snatched up pretty much right when the novel came out. Uh, so have either of you guys read the novel? Nope. No. Uh, okay, so you, you have no like, actual no background to the differences between the novel and the... No, I, I know everything that happens in the novel, and I know all the differences and everything, just by virtue of having um, uh, read Wikipedia and some articles. Oh, so you consulted the Oracle. The Oracle. <laughs> I must admit I've never uh, read any Stephen King. Oh yeah, that see I went through a tear. Uh it was sort of like my first year out of college where I read Stephen King novels voraciously. Uh, I had never really like I remember reading something back in the nineties, The Eyes of the Dragon or whatever the hell the fuck that was. Uh not really being too into it. And then uh somebody's like, Oh, you gotta try The Shining. And so like I wasn't chronologically. I I read like every novel he had written up until that point, it must have been like two thousand two. Uh, so from like the, his first novel, Carrie, all the way up to, I think it was Dreamcatcher was the most recent novel at that point. Uh, and I, I don't even know why I did these things because most of these books I didn't really care for. Uh, I'd even read, I think one of the very last novels I had read was Stephen King's It. And oh my fucking God, was that novel terrible. Uh, but 
it's like 1300 pages long and once you're in like page 900 it's like you gotta finish it out of spite i mean have you guys heard the most recent news about stephen king's it no no oh okay uh kerry fukunaga is a filmmaker who was filming a two-part adaptation of stephen king's it and uh the studio pulled the plug this week Uh, but i think what actually happened was somebody in the brass of the studio actually read the fucking book and got to that you know page 900 it's like what the fuck is this uh like i i don't think you guys got the full if you've if you've seen like the you know 19 like what 1989 miniseries from tv with tim curry as pennywise no i haven't what what goes on in this book is this the thing with the aliens (sighs) no there's no oh that's Dreamcatcher with the aliens no stephen king is it's the fucking clown Oh, okay. Uh, oh, really? You guys been no. hiding under rocks, <laughs> Jeffrey? How, no, how I, you I never, have life. How, how have you never seen this movie? I just didn't look appealing. Oh my god, dude! I guess yeah, I, clowns are like now. intrinsically terrifying anyway. I mean, what would be the point of sitting through this? Well, after uh, after watching Killer Clowns from Outer Space, I just was like, nah, never mind. Well, it's at least <laughs> scarier than that. Like, it, it did freak me out in fifth grade, but. Anyway, where the that miniseries, you know, that TV miniseries ends, is like these kids go confront this spider-like creature in, in a cave and like defeat it by just willpower, and the movie's over. Whereas in the book, it's uh, it's like it, it delineates into outer space, where you have space turtle versus space spider, and it's bizarre as fuck. So like, I have no doubt whatsoever that somebody from the studio is like, uh, space we can't make this turtles. Movie. Then the Mighty Morphin just, Power just a, Rangers no, come a, in to finish a up the space turtle, <laughs> A space turtle versus a large space spider interdimensional. I, it's like it gets so bizarre, and like I don't know if you guys realize this, but in interviews with Stephen King, he says that he like barely remembers the eighties because <laughs> because of his cocaine habit, uh, and you can see there's definitely some. Uh, yeah, but this is a common misconception. Uh, People don't realize cocaine was, uh, it's really good artistically, is what I've heard. I've never done uh, it. I've never heard that about have. cocaine. I've heard that about LSD. Yeah, but what about like Edgar Allan Poe and stuff? You know what I mean? There are uh, people that like. Was he a cokehead? That, that was how they. That's uh, how they did their uh, Well, you have that thing but with I, uh, the Alan Moore series, the From Hell. They made that shitty Johnny Depp movie, but uh, the, lead, the main character in From Hell did cocaine. I remember that part. And, like, it, it got his juices flowing or whatever. But, no, you have, like, the Aldous Huxley's, uh, I don't know, it's not an essay. It's longer than an essay, but it's, I guess, a nonfiction, whatever, yeah. where he was taking mescaline. Of course, mescaline is a, is a psychedelic, psychedelic, yeah, I think that's different. LSD. And it's it's the active ingredient of peyote. Anyway, oh, okay. you know, yeah, yeah. And so, like, he has this essay where he talks about how it gets the creative juices flowing and whatnot. And of course, you have the deal with the Beatles doing their LSD, and uh, they they were pretty prolific during their LSD years. I even I even saw this in social media the other day, where this girl or this artist rather, she uh, dropped acid, and over the course of like eight or ten hours, every was half hour every hour, she would draw a self portrait of herself, and you know she doesn't suck. She was actually really good to to begin with, so she was lucid in the first drawing, and then you see this creativity flower until like midway through this acid trip like it's like trippy but awesome shit uh, whereas Stephen, when Stephen King wrote some of these novels in the 80s uh, there's no acid trippy awesomeness it's just shit uh, anyway 
Uh, like uh, there are some Stephen King books I really do like. I really like The Shining. I really like that book, but it's also one of his shortest books. And I really like Pet Cemetery. And I really liked uh, the only large book that I read that I actually liked a lot of his was Salem's Lot. Of course, those are over here as well. What about Silver Bullet? Yeah, I never read that. Yeah. See what? Who was that lady who um she was uh, coming down with schizophrenia and she started doing she was an artist and she started doing all the cat paintings. Have you seen this? Oh yeah, no, yeah. You do one like every few months and then it gets crazy. It turns into like some kind of fucking Aztec sun god. Yeah, I think you would actually send me the you you're the one that sent me the link on that one. That was yeah, that's pretty awesome. Anyway, so we're we're not even talking about the fucking movie yet. Sorry, we're sending the content. We're sending the Stephen King's context, and what I'm trying to get at is it's a fucking terrifying novel to read. The biggest there are two huge differences between the novels, the novel and the movie that I wanted to talk about. So like, I don't really give a shit about like the little things. Like, did you know that the the twin girls aren't actually in the book? Oh no! Which you, know, no, yeah. That's like awesome. the, the funniest thing is like that's one of the most iconic scenes. Like, oh, I yeah. was just watching Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They even spoofed that scene on that show. Oh, it's, I've in, seen it you know, modern lots day. of times. Yeah, yeah. yeah so like, I, that's I think I just watched the, the same book. episode. Yeah, there's like a oh, ball yeah. that comes rolling down the hallway, and then there's the twin girls, very yellow, <laughs> yellow instead of blue or something. <laughs> right. Which of course is just taken directly from The Shining. But yeah, that that's not in the oh, novel shit. at all. So the main two differences that I wanted to talk about. Uh, number one is that. In the novel, the Overlook Hotel is very much portrayed as its own entity, its own character. Like, uh, obviously, this precedes Stephen King's it by a few years or whatever. But uh, I almost have these like visions that Stephen King wants to think it was like some interdimensional cosmic monster from outer space or some shit. Um, so I'm not exactly sure if that's what he's getting to. But the novel version, the Overlook, is exerting its own will on the Torrances and on Jack, and by the end of the novel, it's the Overlook who has actually possessed Jack, where in the movie, whereas in the movie, it's not like that at all. Uh, yeah, the, over, at the all Overlook the is just like, it's a setting, you know, it becomes sort of a character in the same way that other, you know, settings become characters in a lot of other famous books and movies, uh, but it's not the sentient creature that King wanted it to be. And of course, uh, the other... Yeah. The other major difference I want to talk about is like, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but when Stephen King was deciding which film he wanted to make at this point in time, so this must have been like pretty soon after the novel came out back in 77, but he was like looking at Stephen King's The Shining and he was looking at this other book by Diane Johnson and he ends up like calling Diane Johnson, this other novelist, and be like, yeah, I'm choosing between Stephen King's book and your book. I'm not quite sure which to do yet. Uh, and, you know, that was just the course of the conversation. He ends up calling Diane Johnson back, saying, I'm making Stephen King's book, but I want you to co-write the, the screenplay with me because I don't think I can work with Stephen King. Uh, so <laughs> he, he flew her out to England to work with him uh, concocting this screenplay. And the reason why he wanted to do it, and to have this, he wanted her to do it in particular because of just her own style of writing or whatever, but he wanted to play up the familial aspect of the shining, the, the connections between these, these individuals as a family where, and you know, I'm not gonna say that doesn't exist in the Stephen King book. It's just not quite as present in the novel. I think, mm-hmm. uh, anyway, why so that, wouldn't you want to work with a drunkard cokehead? Well, <laughs> well, we, we, like Stephen King after the fact, I mean, I don't know how, how often he's actually spoken about the movie, but, uh, he apparently doesn't have that high opinion of a, that film anyway, which would probably, yeah, which would it probably, sounds like the Overlook Hotel, 
It sounds like the Overlook Hotel is like that episode of um, South Park where Walmart comes to town. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they have to, like, blow it up. Because the end of the novel, it ends, like, they um, overpressurize the boiler in the basement. Yes. And it, it like, literally explodes. Um, I was saying yeah. before, it's like, uh, the, like, we have boilers in, like, every major building or household once upon a time. Yeah. Like, basically, if you just wanted to, like, self-destruct, you would just go tighten the valve I know. You, and then run. I actually think I saw this part of the film, or, like, I saw something about it. Pretty early on, it used to freak me out. Like, oh my god, the boiler's gonna explode, and you know, and no, I would freak out. I, I think well, uh, I wonder, like, yeah, uh, how did Cooper get along with all the writers? Because I know with um, Full Metal Jacket, it's based off of a series of short stories called The Short Timers, um, and they're by uh, Gustav Hasford is the guy's name. I've read The Short Timers, uh, and I my understanding was um, Stanley Kubrick when he was making Full Metal Jacket, he was living in Britain already. Yeah. And so they were, like, traveling back and forth, because Hasford was living in the U.S. He actually was a former Marine. Yeah. He's American. And um, they would fight tooth and nail. They would go to dinner, and they would end up walking out of the restaurant halfway through the meal, because they fought like cats and dogs. Really? I wonder if he kind of, like, knew at that point in his career. I mean, like, he made Full Metal Jacket afterward. Yeah. But I wonder if he knew at that point in his career, like, even then, I can't really get along with these writers. Because he'd already well, been What about made Burgess Lita. and uh, Clockwork Orange? Yeah, Anthony Burgess and, um, yeah. I, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know what his relationship was with them. Uh, um, I know Arthur C. Clarke, he worked hand-in-hand yeah, with them. Yeah, yeah, like that, yeah, right, Arthur right. C. True. I think Arthur C. Clarke ended up pissed off at him after 2001 because um, they were supposed to coordinate, and the novel and the film were supposed to be released at the same time, uh, and Kubrick pushed to have 2001 released before the novel, so it preceded mm, it by, like, six months. <laughs> yeah, and everybody, <laughs> and, like, people were assuming... Uh, yeah, it does make. And everybody assumed that like Arthur C. Clarke just wrote like a novelization. Like you know, people didn't realize that it was them working hand. It's really supposed to be like. I a think you know what? Hour. Come to think, like Kubrick has these like little anecdotes where he's like he seems like this really fucking cool guy, but then you know, like you hear these other little anecdotes, like man, that guy must have been a dick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like he, yeah, he wasn't afraid he, to lie about shit. Like, apparently, when uh, speaking of The Shining, when they uh, they submitted the trailer for The Shining to the uh, with the uh, the movie board or whatever the fuck that governs that. MPAA or something. Yeah. uh, That elevator scene with the blood. Like you were, you were not allowed to show blood on a movie trailer under any circumstances. Cause this is the shit that goes on TV. And Kubrick tells these people like, Oh, it's just rusty water. (laughs) These fucking people bought it. and Let him release it in the trailer. So, I mean, he definitely wasn't because he had done there. He he wasn't above lying to people's faces. It seems like. Anyway, yeah. All right, so uh, I think we've adequately talked about some of these differences between the novel and the book, or a novel and the well, movie. Yeah, hey, what pisses me off though, um, King like, criticized Kubrick because he said that like he didn't understand horror like as an entire genre, and it's like what the fuck? That, that I don't know because like I've seen the movie, which Stephen King apparently hasn't. Have you heard this? He's never actually made it through a full sitting of the movie. Have you ever heard that? I've not heard that. So, so like, I'm more qualified to talk about the movie The Shining than Stephen King is. Ooh. Think about that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and like, no, it's it's a good movie. Like, maybe you should just hold your nose and watch it once, Stephen. But, uh, yeah, he, he was all over Kubrick's ass about it. Like, he, he was saying that Kubrick fucked the thing up. I actually have a personal story from my childhood about, you know, The Shining. And uh, I, I talked to my brother yesterday because it, it was his birthday. And... Uh, when I was little, he used to do that kind of hunched over, weird ass run that he yeah. did in the movie that Jack Nicholson's character oh. did in the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. What are you talking about, like at the end? Yeah, where he kind yeah, of has that weird run, you know? You know yeah, he's like about? limping. Yeah, uh, that used to. My brother used to do that to me all the time when I, Freak, I was freaked you know, your ass out. Scared, man. scared the shit. Did he have shit a fire axe? Me. 
<laughs> no, he didn't have an axe. <laughs> Uh, but he used to scare that, just that, that kind of weird loping run used to scare the shit out of me, and he used to love to do it all the time. All so, right. okay, let's go ahead and talk about the actual production of the movie. Uh, as far as the history of Stanley Kubrick goes, besides him being a dick, apparently you know writers and whatnot, uh, he has like I said, these other little anecdotes where he wasn't a dick. So I think he was just a servant of his art more than anything would try to do what he needed to do. But as far as the production goes. Uh, like he must have started production pretty quickly after he locked up these rights, and the film came out in 1980. So, I guess what two and a half is is that? I mean, uh, Jimmers, you're much more of a Kubrick historian than I am. Is two and a half years pretty quick for student, Stanley Kubrick to make a movie? That's fuck. That's smoking fast. That's unbelievable. Yeah, I I I knew that The Shining had come out in 1977, uh, the, the novel, and that the movie was released in 1980. I never thought about that. Like what? What fire was lit under his ass to do that? Because everything else is like seven years, ten years. Yeah, right. And the, you know, that's the thing. Like he's so fastidious with his filmmaking, and yeah, you know, he he puts all this effort into every single shot. And I was reading something about this where he, it, you couldn't be surprised as an ac- actor to do like sixty takes of one single shot. And as far as production of this movie goes, there are parts in this movie where he would make Jack Nicholson like just run through every emotional gamut that he could possibly run through as an actor in the course of this, these takes. So, you know, 50, you're, you're 50, 60 takes in. Mm-hmm. And so the, one of the reasons why Jack Nicholson looks so fucking unhinged is because he probably was. He's like, oh, fucking yeah. Christ, this guy. Oh, I'm going to kill him. Yeah. Oh. Like, so, keep pushing me. I'm not going to have to pretend to go crazy. Right, 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 right. But uh, yeah. he, he was like that all, a lot. But there's this other story I was reading about right. this. Uh, I don't know if you guys read this because of the 35th anniversary. For those of you who actually, you know, are real big fans of the movie, uh, there's been some some press about it, not a whole lot about the 35th anniversary, but there's this cute little story about the uh, the actor who plays Danny Torrance, who's what Danny Lloyd, I think is the, the actor's name. They both have the same name, Danny. But uh, he did not tell Danny Lloyd that they were filming a horror movie. In fact, he was extremely protective of Danny Lloyd during the filming process, and so like any kind of scary moment, he'd be like, he had like a a really elaborate dummy built. So when uh, Shelley Duvall was like running away from Jack. Uh, he's she's actually carrying a dummy and not a real child because she he didn't want the, the kid to get freaked out. Aww. So uh, yeah, yeah. So the one of stories. Like, yeah, I'm I'm back to liking Kubrick again. Oh, okay, okay. Good, good thing. <laughs> uh, and, anyway, they. <laughs> uh, yeah, there've been some interviews over the last year uh, talking about. There's this great little interview with uh, Malcolm McDowell. Oh, geez, uh, some other uh, one of the other guys he used to work with. Um. And uh, Ryan O'Neill, the guy that's in Barry Lyndon, and they're they're talking about Stanley Kubrick. I mean, like nobody had bad things to say about him, or even anything that you can infer to say bad about the guy. You can tell, you know, they weren't holding back anything. So he, I mean, as much as he pushed his actors, they all had fond memories of the guy. Mm-hmm. So I, I found that to be interesting. Anyway, uh, you know what already strikes me when I go and I rewatch the film. Like, the first third of the film, I sit there and I'm always like, man, this acting is so shitty. Yeah. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, where, where Jack goes to the hotel and he's interviewing. Oh, that guy. And that, it's yeah, like, no. it's really stilted. It, it kind of reminds me of, like, the only anecdotes you hear about George Lucas telling the actors that he wanted them to act really badly right, right, for the right. Star Wars prequels and stuff like that. Because it seems like it's intentional. Because, like, the last two thirds of the movie, the acting is incredible. So, I'm like, maybe it's supposed to be, like, 
it's setting up this thing subconsciously where it's like actors pretending to act. So like you, you think of it as like, oh, that's God kind damn. of like Are the you superficial out a level. New, a new conspiracy theory? <laughs> no, I mean, this is more of like, I'm trying to analyze his artistic decisions. Cause I think stylistically, it, it, it feels like, oh man, this is so weird. Like there's something under the surface. Yeah. And also like, to be honest, I kind of feel like it's like a job interview at the beginning. Like that's yeah. job interviews I go to. Like you sit there and, you know, you smile and make eye contact and you, you talk in complete sentences and, you know. All right. You know what? That's, that's your mouth open. what you're saying right now is actually a point that I would like to come back. Cause I, I, we're talking about our own personal takeaways, I think towards the end, uh, remind me to come back to that. Cause there's something you said that I really liked. Uh, anyways, anything else? Have, what, what? I do have a question. Um, the whole red rum, red rum um, <laughs> in the book. Is that supposed to be the house? No, um, that's Tony influencing. The, oh, uh, no, I mean, was that supposed to be the house influencing the kid? No, uh, the shining uh, is a, what do you call it? A euphemism for a psychic ability that Danny ah. has. And then apparently Jack has, and it's only inferred in the book and in the film, but the, Red rum thing comes from his imaginary friend, and of course, during the course of the film, during the course of the novel, we learn that that's not. It's it's a Tony is a spirit who that uh, Danny befriended, and who's following him up until a certain point right, in the film, of course, in the, in the novel. But uh, yeah, that's it. He's he's a medium. He you know he hears spirits talking to him. He's a short medium. These, these other spirits are whispering yeah. their own warnings of the Overlook. Right, because I think in the novel it's supposed to be that, like, the spirits sense that Danny's a medium, and they, like, want the power, and they can't get into him. Right. They can't possess him, so instead they go after the father, they go after Jack Torrance, and that's what happens with him. Basically, yeah, that, that is it. That is it. All right, anything else we could say about the actual production of the film, gentlemen? Uh, any nope. any uh, Kubrick insight there, Jimmers? No, I, I just feel like the fact that he made it so quickly, it makes me actually, I, I never really thought about it much. But it makes some of the conspiracy theories that I know about the film more plausible. Now. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that in just a few moments here, huh? Mm. Yeah, okay. Now the jump. Uh, all right. So uh, the movie came out May 26 of 1980, guys. Uh, I, I was obviously too young. I was a wee babe at that point. But it's a, I, I don't even think I saw – I think I saw little bits and pieces, like walking into rooms. and It was on, like, HBO, whatever, when I was really little. And I don't think I saw it in its entirety until I was probably in high school. Um, but as far as the plot, you know, like the history of the film, uh, I'm going to go through this, this spec guys. There is, I, I went to I, IMDB, which is a, uh, collected scores of all the ratings between critics and of course the users of IMDB. Do you, do you know what, what the numerical value for the shining is on IMDB? Take a guess. 8.8. Ooh, that's a little too high. Jammers, a little too high. So 7.5. Jeffrey, come on, goddamn! It's eight point five. It's eight point five. And you know where? Do you know where it ranks on the uh, IMDb top two fifty? No. Uh, Give me a ballpark. One twenty-seven. Oh, you're selling the short, Jimmers. Jeffrey, what? Eighty-four. Oh, oh, Jeff. It's actually another uh, Stanley Kubrick movie. Is at number fifty? You know what movie that might be? Clockwork Orange. Or I think 2001 would be higher. Uh, 2001 like is pretty high, is pretty high up there, but number 50 is another. Yeah, uh, 2001 would be too I high. I think it's Full Metal Jacket. I could be wrong. 
Anyway, like, oh, really? like Barry Lyndon oh, is like awesome. number two forty-eight. Yeah, so several of the, the, yeah. the Kubrick movies are on there. Uh, but uh, I, earlier this week, I, yeah, I was talking with a student, and she had like a list of like AFI's top one hundred films, oh, and AFI. I was looking at all the Kubrick ones that were on there. And they, well, yeah, like they didn't have Full Metal Jacket on the top 100, but they had Clockwork Orange uh, in the middle. They had 2001 was toward the top, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I was trying to think, like, what were the top tier Kubrick movies? Anyway. According to collective thinking. The, yeah, the Shining, yeah is anyway, number, the Shining is ranked number 58. Uh, so okay. it, it's pretty, pretty high damn up close. Oh, yeah, you That's were. You close. were. And you, you got a Kubrick myth, movie on number 50 anyway, so you get half credit, sir. Half credit. <laughs> uh, anyway, as far as the uh, Rotten Tomatoes is the same kind of thing. It's. Uh, it, it's an aggregate of various movie reviews, but in looking at Rotten Tomatoes, I noticed that every single review cold for that score was cold after 2002 or 2003. Uh, it has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. And then you go to Metacritic. Metacritic takes into account all sorts of shit, and, that, and that's historically speaking as well. Uh, and if you look at the Metacritic score, give me a guess on the Metacritic, Metacritic score which takes into account uh, film reviewers from that day and age. Wait, what's Metacritic? It's like out of 100 or something? Oh, Met- Yeah, Metacritic is out of 100. Okay. And it's, it takes in contemporary scores from when it came out? Yeah, yeah contemporary. It's probably lower it takes than in everything. Because, yeah, right, because like everybody now agrees that it's a really good film right. and it's a masterpiece and so forth. So I, I would say it's a little bit lower. I would say, I don't know, um, 65. Ooh. Yeah, I was going to say in the 60s, too. Yeah, you're, you guys are both pretty much on. It's 61. So I actually uh, have some mm. some review statements from uh, that period. This is from Variety magazine from 1980. The crazier Nicholson gets, the more idiotic he looks. Shelley Duvall transforms the warm, sympathetic wife of the book into a simpering, semi-retarded hysteric. <laughs> it's cool that they can still say semi-retarded. <laughs> Nowadays, that you would never, you would never get away with that now. But that's from Variety. Yeah. <laughs> which, of course, uh, has yeah. a long history. Uh, this was from a, a newspaper or a magazine that I've never heard of. It probably doesn't even exist anymore, but I didn't really bother to look up. It might still exist. I could be wrong. But this is from the Chicago Reader in 1980. Kubrick is, after a cool, sunlit vision of hell, born in the bosom of the nuclear family. But his imagery, with its compulsive symmetry and brightness, is too banal to sustain interest. While the incredibly slack narrative line forestalls suspense. Boy, that guy is way up his own ass. Well, uh, there's all sorts of things wrong with it. I mean, like, oh, it's yeah. it's not suspenseful. Yeah, like, uh, did, did he actually no, no, watch no, no. the movie? I, well, yeah, what pisses me off about this is that, like, I, I guess the, move, the novel had come out so recently with the film yeah. that everybody's complaining about how it's not the exact same thing as the novel. Yeah. Like, their expectations were betrayed with this. I feel like I hear the same crap all the time with, like, Harry Potter movies. Uh, I'll watch it, I'll be like, that's a very competent movie. It looks well done. Yeah. Somebody's a really big fan of the novels. But, oh, they cut out an entire storyline. This movie sucks ass. Well, uh, as a huge Harry Potter fan, I'm not going to go that far. I think the, the, they both stand pretty well on their own. Uh, not, yeah, but there are people like that. Yeah. The other. But, no, you're right. I was reading some of the uh, comments on IMDb about The Shining after you know, I was collecting this information. Uh, and of course, lots of people were bitching about Shelley Duvall and her acting in the movie, and it just sort of goes with what you were saying. Oh, she, I think she's great in the movie. Yeah, like, I think that's kind of like the what we're we have come to realize only after time. But in this uh, this interview that I was talking about, which was uh, oh Ryan O'Neill, Mark Medell, and uh, Leon Vitale, that was the other guy's name. Uh, they're talking like they they came out and said it. It's like Kubrick 
almost without exception, was 10 years ahead of his time. Like, he, the, the guy who was interviewing these three dudes, he's like, yeah, people are actually coming around to Eyes Wide Shut now. And where it was, it wasn't reviled back in 99 when it came out, but man, there was a lot of shit press about that movie. And now we're like, yeah, right, people there look at it, here we are 16 years later after that movie came out, and uh, you know what? People are starting to appreciate it a hell of a lot more. And it's actually starting to get a lot more of a, you know, a pop culture identity than it ever used to have in probably like the last five years, which goes with what the, the reviewer, this interviewer was saying about how it takes 10 years for the rest of the world to catch up to Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. And like everybody gives a certain, they give themselves over to like a certain kind of like leap of faith whenever they're watching a Stanley Kubrick movie. Like we've all just kind of like generally accepted that it's so damn good. People look at like a little tapestry in the background and they'll be like, oh, this represents the Bolshevik party in Russia yeah, in the 1920s. Yeah. So, you know, like nobody does that with any other movie. Nobody's out with a magnifying glass looking at the That's background. True. Like we all just kind You're of collectively right. decided this is what Kubrick does. Um, See, and I'm not yeah. a Kubrick fanboy, so I can just look at his movies individual without, you know, feeling like I have to like it because it's Kubrick. You know? Yeah, well, I'm just saying like a good movie comes out and you watch it once and you're like, That's a good movie. And a Kubrick movie comes out and you watch it and you're like, that thing sucks. So then you have to watch it 10 more times until it's good because you know it's Kubrick. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I feel like I've gone through this before with some of those films. No, that's true. So uh, anyway, it, it had very that. mixed reviews when this movie came out. But here we are, you know, almost exactly 35 years later, and we're talking about what a fucking icon this movie is. And while it's not my number one favorite horror movie, it's not my number one favorite Kubrick movie, it's definitely top five i think i'm both you know it might be for as far as kubrick movies it's probably top three what do you guys think right uh i mean you know i'm not sure how much i would like it if it weren't for all the conspiracy theories really? that are surrounding it and everybody like reading into it uh, there, but uh, there's so much subtext theories. for this movie anyway like even yeah if, like, well here I, I feel like i i feel like on one level i secretly dislike it because it is so iconic like we're talking about the um that uh, makes you a hipster Dimmers, you're a hipster so are you. Yeah, well, okay, yeah, well, I, I agree with that. Like, I mean, like, to an extent, if something is, like, super popular and everybody else likes it and they're freaking idiots, it, it dissuades me from liking it. But, um, all the really iconic stuff in it, you know, the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, yeah. and the, here's Johnny. Oh, speaking of that well, line, like fact, how funny is it that yeah. that line outlives its source? Like, people no longer associate, here's Johnny with The Tonight Show, with Johnny right. Carson. Yeah. It's almost yeah. universally oh, yeah. 100% associated with that movie. Right. Like, I, I'm, I'm 100% in agreement with that. It's true. I, I think of The Shining before I think of Johnny Carson. Yeah. And with that line, and, like, that's what my problem is with it. Like, it's so iconic that, like, The Shining doesn't just exist as, like, the movie in and of itself, per se. Like, it's it exists as everybody's expectations and the cultural kind of collective, how we've assimilated it into our culture. Like, it's sort of like this shell also of itself, because everybody knows The Shining, even though nobody's really like a Shining connoisseur or a Kubrick connoisseur, but everybody knows it. Yeah. I don't know, it makes well, me that, feel less special. The bathroom that. scene is just so iconic, though. I mean, it even, is. like it I is. said, I'm not a Kubrick fanboy, and eh, The Shining isn't my favorite movie, but the way he's cutting into through the door with the axe and she's just oh, freaking the fuck uh, yeah. out. They, that awesome. movie, it, it stands the test of time or it really does. And I, I didn't watch it this Ooh. week, but I watched it. The reason why is because I actually watched it probably about a month ago. So it was still pretty fresh in my brain. Uh, and I have some, you know, newer ideas about it new takes on it than I did before, but that's, that's the beauty of this movie is number one, it's still scary. And number two, 
Uh, Timbers was the one who had actually told me about this this documentary, Room 237, and I actually just recently started watching that. But I was trying to look at it in a different light, and you know what? I, 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 came, I came away with something else than what I had watched the first couple times. Which of course is a testament to it. Yeah, well, I, I'm gonna say I'm not sure if it holds up really well. Like it holds up for us because we kind of grew up watching it in one way. I, I grew up watching it on network television, so it didn't have the um, furry or the, the um, <laughs> naked witch woman. Oh, in Ruby yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I was I was gonna mention that about the is that the origin of the furry movement where he goes and he looks in this room and there's this this uh was a couple of people with a and then another guy with a with a rabbit outfit on i was like what the fuck he's a dog yeah he's a dog yeah, he's supposed dog. to be a dog I, I look at the screen cap of it oh it's supposed to be um, a dog yeah it's a dog yeah and he's he's blowing a guy in a tuxedo yeah, so it's supposed it's to represent crazy. he's blowing like, isn't it? the the caretaker that died before that um i'm not sure i think, if it's I think it is great oh, damn i don't it might not be i don't know <laughs> But I mean, it's it's blowing a guy in a tuxedo, so he's supposed to represent the American, you know, um, vested wealth, you know, oh industrial God. class. Yeah. And the dog guy, it's supposed to represent the subjugation of the working classes in the United States. Oh also. Oh my God! Wow. That's what it means. And also, there's a there's a subplot from the novel I've heard where they um actually explain the thing. It was supposed to be like there was a bisexual guy there in the 1920s who. Uh, he told a guy if he was a good little dog, he'd let him suck his dick or something. So, like, he, eventually you actually see the literal interpretation of that the guy dresses up like a dog. I have no recollection of that in the novel, but it very well could be. Yeah, I haven't read the novel, but I've, I've read that that's what it's, it's supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, it's been, it's been. But I, I think my interpretation's better. So, um, what's and, the weirdest conspiracy theory out there? Well, let's, let's, let's move it. Let's go ahead and transition into that as far as the, uh, the, his, you know, the historical posterity of this film. Uh, the next thing we should probably talk about then is, uh, you know, this documentary that came out, Room 237, really highlights the top conspiracies out there. So, uh, Jimmers, I have to admit, yeah. I've only watched the first half of the movie, so I can only speak to what was in the first oh, half, but uh, why don't you go ahead and take us through what's yeah. going on with Room 237. Alright, Room 237, it follows around a bunch of people who are obsessed with The Shining, and they've all developed... These, I don't know if you want to call them conspiracy theories, but they've all developed these grand theories about the meaning, secretly, of The Shining. And there are a couple of main ones. Um, there's one that the movie is actually about the Holocaust. Uh, in that theory, they point out that the Jack Torrance is writing on the typewriter. He's using an Adler typewriter, and um, it was the same model of typewriter that was used during the Nazis and concentration and death camps. And it's actually a German typewriter. Um, the blood coming out of the elevator is supposed to be the blood of the genocide from the Holocaust and so forth. Um, another one of the theories is that it's about uh, the genocide of American Indians in the U.S. And so, like, there are all these Indian motifs, and, and even in the movie they say explicitly it's supposed to be, like, the Navajo motif of the motel. They mentioned about hotel. They Jackson. Yeah, they mentioned, yeah, and they mentioned about it being built on an Indian burial ground. So um, one of the people, they made a diagram. And they actually postulated that the blood coming out of the um, elevator doors is from the Indians themselves buried underneath the hotel. Like that blood, like an oil well, is coming up through the elevator shaft and blowing out of the elevator doors. Um, another one of the theories was that um, it's all about uh, um, mythology, Greek mythology, and that it's about uh, the Minotaur. That was kind of like the shortest of the theories. Um, oh, because the maze. Posters in the background. Yeah, there's a maze at the end, but there's a poster in the game room where it's somebody skiing, and the way they have their hand and their, their ski stick up, it, it actually looks like a bull with horns. And then the maze at the end, of course. 
And then probably the most famous of the theories is that the movie is actually supposed to be like this cathartic confession from Stanley Kubrick that he faked the Apollo 11 moon landing. Really? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, is that fucked up or what? Uh, um, that's it's really weird. Up. Cause, um, yeah, like, Room 237. I think that's the most famous one, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I've long heard Kubrick associated with that, even before you thought about the movie. Yeah, um, I stumbled across a website. It was five years ago. I was uh, doing research on 2001 and different interpretations. And there there are different interpretations for 2001 as well. Some people think it's about the occult, and there's just, like, all this occult imagery in it and stuff, and the planets represent different humors and stuff. And I stumbled across this guy's website, and he had a section about 2001, and another section was about The Shining. And I started looking at The Shining thing, and it was like page after page after page of all these correlations between The Shining and the Apollo 11 landing. And I started reading through it, and I was like addicted to I mean, it was just like incredible. And some of the stuff was like pretty subtle. Like in the background in one scene, there's, um, you know, like 11 cases of 7-Up. And it's supposed to be the eleven cases represent Apollo eleven. Wait, wait, the seven wait, wait. represented. There were seven successful oh rockets God. that went up. That's what you call the reaching. Space That's what you call. Uh, reaching. Yeah, okay. And I, I, I agree with you. Like that was reaching. But then there are other parts of the film where it's like, holy shit! Like this looks pretty legit. Like, um, there's a scene where like the ball rolls, rolls to Danny when he's playing with the trucks on the floor, and he yeah. stands up, and he's wearing an Apollo eleven sweater. That's true. That's true. Oh, and really? then what is he? Yeah, and then he sees... But yeah, how many yes, kids back then were wearing that says Apollo 11 has a rocket. Yeah. Oh, guys, and, um, just imagine when they hire uh, Michael Bay to fake the Mars landing. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh, no one's I think we'll be able to tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, then, you know, Danny gets up wearing the Apollo 11 sweater, and what does he see? He sees the two twins. Oh, Gemini, and what are the yeah. twins astrologically? They're the Gemini. Wait, and the that, like I said, that, replaced and the that Gemini. scene isn't in the book too. So yeah, uh. yeah. Um, there's other stuff. Wait, well, yeah, don't, don't laugh about this stuff. I mean, he, um, he changed the room number in the novel. It was two seventeen, and he changed it to two thirty seven, which is where the horrifying experience with you know the the witch woman occurs. Yeah, and um, it was supposed to be that textbooks, even through the eighties, I think. They calculated that the distance from the Earth to the Moon was 237,000 miles on average, because it changes a little bit in its elliptical orbit. So people point to that. Um, there's a lot of tapestries in the background that look like rockets taking off. And, and if you look at this page, I mean, it was page after page on this website. Wow. Of so it was very, very devoted information. Right. Like, like, some of them were, like, throwaway things. Some of them were, like, really impressive. Like, oh, I, I was looking at the website, and I'm like, holy shit, Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing. And by the way, <laughs> I didn't even really believe that the moon landing was fake. I mean, like, I believe we landed on the moon. Yeah, yeah. And it made me question that. Like, it was so... It was so well it just done. just kind of... Um, it was so well done. And... Um, but the thing is, like, you look at a website like that, and it really... It's a bunch of screen caps and stuff, but it really only encapsulates, like, five minutes of the movie. You know how long <laughs> it does. The Shining is? It's, it's two and a half hours long. Saying, yeah, it's pretty you long. Know? So I sit there, and I actually, like, watch the film... And I'm like, yeah, he's wearing an Apollo 11 sweater in one scene, and that's pretty much it, you know. So, um, I I hate to say it, but I finally have just like admitted we probably did land on the moon, unfortunately. Oh Oh, yeah, (laughs) damn it, um, damn it, reality, fuck, what am I gonna do? But um, it it makes for a really, really interesting thought experiment. All right, so uh, let's personalize this, guys, and then we'll uh, wrap things up. But Jeffrey. What's your takeaway from Kubrick's The Shining? Um, 
it's boring for a long time. <laughs> oh my god! No, 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 no. And then it's not See, can, at the end. Yeah, the, the end is not boring. Can I, can I just interject really quickly? Like Buchanan, you were talking about how like you thought it held up really well. I'm not sure it would. I think like a 14 year old watching it today would be like, "What the hell?" No, I, I hear things from young, like all these young people all the time yeah, that, that like they're still looking at it the same way we looked at it when we first watched it. Yeah, there was an acknowledgement that it's a different time, a different place. Like, oh, why the fuck couldn't they have just used this? Like, nobody brings up the right. fact that this like, is a different era. It's the movie, yeah. within the context of its right. time, does, in fact, still scare the shit out of people. Right. Yeah, like, like the fact uh, when she's, like, in the radio room trying to call up, like, the, the forest service or whatever and get help. I'm like, yeah. nowadays, like, you would just get on your phone and be, like, emailing the satellites right. and shit. Or you could just, like, in a couple of years, like, you'd just go on Amazon and buy something, and yeah, Jeff that, Bezos would that movie would, uh, Yeah, that movie would be over, like, 30 minutes in. Armor. Yeah. <laughs> but then That's again, true for um, a lot of movies back then, Yeah, though. every, every movie probably before the year 2000 would be, you know, completely obsolete and irrelevant by today's standards. Yeah. Like, right. and that includes, but, but, like, 95% like, like, of horror films. Yeah. Well, I feel like when I was a kid watching on network TV, I never caught like the fact that Jack was an alcoholic. Really? Like that wasn't something until, until I was like, you know, like well into my twenties and I rewatched it once. Yeah. The part, cause it only mentions like when the doctor is talking to Wendy, Wendy's like, Oh, Jack got drunk once and he accidentally broke Danny's arm. Like when I was a kid, I was just like, Oh shit, he must have slipped and fall. And, and did some kind of, you know, I, I didn't have any fucking idea. I didn't know like about these euphemisms and stuff. Yeah. And you know, like when he goes to the hotel and they're like, we don't keep liquor in the hotel. And he's like, well, my wife and I don't drink. You know, I, right. I didn't understand that he was trying to get on the wagon. I, I had no concept of these things. Right. Uh, okay. So, uh, Jeffrey, your takeaway is that it was boring until it wasn't. And then it was scary. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All right, Cut Jim, to the chase, motherfuckers. What's your takeaway from The Shining? Do you have any uh, your own personal theories about hidden meanings or otherwise? Yeah, I, I kind of do. I think okay. it's about I think it's about humanity's long history of genocide. This is mere. Oh, so you're going with the uh, the first theory on two thirty seven. Well, well, two of the theories were that it was genocide. One was it's about the Holocaust. One yeah, is that it's about yeah, that's true. The first Native Americans. Yeah, and it's also kind of combining a little bit of the moon landing stuff. Because in the film, there is a ton of American symbolism. Like, when he goes in for the job interview and he's sitting at the desk, you know, the, the proprietor, the manager of the hotel, he looks like Kennedy. Like, he's got this giant, you know, um, a light-colored swath of hair across his head. Yeah. Um, and uh, he has an American flag on his desk. And then there's an eagle sitting over next to the radio. I mean, there's, right. there's all sorts of like little American things. There's almost uh, in every room of the hotel, you'll, you'll, if you look in the background, you'll find American flags everywhere. It's kind of interesting. It's a nice little, um, subconscious sort of hints or See, there. I, I don't, but, um, I don't see that as much as being a big deal because obviously you were probably too younger. What year were you born? 1984. Okay, 84. Uh, I remember. But I, I usually tell people 86. Oh, oh, look at you, 29 again. <laughs> so I can um, still be in my 20s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I remember like that era because 1976, the in the United States, there was American flag shit. Right, like, yeah. Everywhere. Well, Plus, it was well, during the Cold War. It was ubiquitous. It was during the Cold War. Yeah. Like, I don't really right. like the significance of the American flag throughout. I, I, I just don't like. I, I remember my brother had fucking toys with American flags and everything. Yeah, during, during the have, Cold War, it was rah, 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 all the yeah. way. So anyway, yeah, keep, okay. but, sorry, keep going. Well, geez, I completely concede that. No, um, th there's all this American flag symbolism. There's the Apollo 11 sweater, which, you know, is a quintessence that, of that America. That is weird. Is, I, you know, the, the that is peak of, of technical innovation. 
Um, it, it, but then, you know, like, there's all kinds of little things, like, like The Shining, like, what does it literally let Danny do? Like, it lets him talk to the ghosts of the past. It lets him see the ghosts of the past. Yeah. It, it, it's like he's in touch with the past while his father, Jack, isn't. And so Jack goes insane. He becomes a murderer. You know, if he had the ability, he, he would be a genocidal murderer. Mm-hmm. And it's only Danny at the end where he's going through the maze and he starts walking backward through his own tracks in the snow. Is he able to escape the genocidal maniac father? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about at the end of the film? Yeah, yeah. He starts walking back yeah, through the maze. Right. So only by reflecting on our past and reconciling ourselves with the ghosts of it are we able to escape the cycles of genocide in society and throughout okay, history. Okay. And yeah, and um, I, th- there's a bazillion little things in it that are, I, I feel like are like that. Explicitly, you know what I mean? Like they talk about in the film, it was built on the Indian burial ground, the right. Overlook Hotel. That's yeah, that's um, yeah, it's well, the Overlook. You know, like oh, the overlooking maze part, history. The maze part. Yeah. The kid is able to to um, escape the maze by kind of holding on to where he came from. As where the Nicholson character just goes full balls to the walls, crazy into the maze and loses himself. Yeah, and he goes crazy and just he, he freezes at the end. Yeah, yeah. Because for those people, it's yeah. a static condition. It's always the same thing over and over and over again. Um, so Danny's able to to escape. Um, th- there's other stuff too, like uh, it, when he goes to the gold room and all the ghosts come back. Yeah. Um, and he he sells his soul to the devil. Do you remember that scene? Yeah. Yeah, like, he's like, man, I would give my soul for a drink. And he's like, okay, here you go. <laughs> and, uh, Woo, that was out, easy. He pulls out some whiskey. Like, hypothetically speaking. Um, yeah, um, I, that wasn't clear. Um, so he uh, uh, gets his drink, and uh, he starts talking about white man's burden while they're sitting there. That's, yeah. And then it's funny because Halloran, he, like, every time I rewatch a film, I'm always like, it's really weird. Halloran is there, and he happens to be black. And it, but he's just like every other character in the film. And then like three quarters of the way through the film, he suddenly becomes really, really black. Like it cuts to him in his hotel room in Miami. And he's got like this giant um, picture on the wall. Do you guys remember what I'm talking about when it shows Halloran's apartment yeah. in Miami? Yeah, I do. And he's got this giant picture on the wall of a black woman with a giant afro. Uh-huh. And you're like, holy shit. Like this guy's like black liberation. Like, you know, like, like all of a sudden, you know, like it's sort of like he's wearing it on his sleeve. And he comes back to... um. Uh, Colorado, and when he he rents the the snowmobile thing to go up to the hotel, yeah, he like the black guy is the guy who owns like the rental place. They're like, hey, my brother, what's going on? You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden he turns like really black, and the people in the gold room start referring to they just call Halloran the nigger. So they're like, the nigger is trying to uh, interfere. Yeah, we must yeah. stop the nigger. Ooh. And you know, like what is that supposed to represent? Like that is supposed to be you know all of the supposedly subordinate races, and you know it's supposed to be the whites who are subjugating them and murdering them. And um, that, I think that's also what the, the dog thing is. I'm not sure what the race of the dog guy who's blowing, you know, the furry scene we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure what that guy's race is, but I wouldn't be surprised if he took off the costume and the makeup and if he were black. It shows his face. He's white. No, he's wearing makeup. He's covered in makeup. I was just looking at a screen cap of it like a half hour ago. I swear, like, or maybe. All right. Uh, well, I'm going to diverge a little bit. I, I do think there is definitely subtext there. But I think Kubrick was definitely playing up the mental illness aspect. And this is, I'm going to go back to what you had said before about how in the beginning of the film that the acting seems almost bad by comparison to what comes afterwards. Uh, and what really, it was, it was my most recent viewing of this movie that I sort of came to this conclusion in that 
by the climax of the movie when uh, they they do go outside and darkness has fallen and it's before they get into the maze. I think it's actually right when Shelley Duvall has to climb out the window in the bathroom. Isn't that when she's outside? Yeah, yeah that's, okay. that's when she first gets and outside. And then yeah. it has this shot of the overlook and it looks almost like a human skull because of the lighting. Yeah. And, uh, all I remember is every time it shows the overlook, like it, it keeps filling, like the snow keeps getting higher and higher. Yeah. 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 And that always freaks me out. Oh, yeah. Eventually like it's up Speak, to like the second. Speaking of, windows. uh, interesting production facts, you know, that's 900 tons, 900 tons of fake snow. Wow. I wouldn't be surprised. It looks oh, like shit. it. That's a shit ton of fake snow. Yeah. Oh wait, it's 900 yeah, shit tons I, of fake snow. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, no, what, what I'm trying to get as it, uh, there's a Kubrick purposefully wanted to make the overlook less of a character and make Jack more of a mental case in the movie and does it with gangbusters. I mean, you feel that Jack is becoming unhinged even before they get to the, the overlook. There's that conversation while they're driving up to the overlook. And like, I forget exactly yeah. what the dialogue is, but I just, I just remember being like, Oh shit, that guy's going fucking crazy. Uh, and they're talking course, about the, the Donner party. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. That's right. It's the Donner party conversation. You're like, why is he talking about that with his, you know, seven year old kid? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Bizarre. And, uh, and the kid like brings it up. Like, like, isn't this where, uh, no, I think Wendy brings it up. She's like, isn't this where the Donner party was? And he's like, no, sweetie, that was out west of the Sierras. You yeah. have nothing to worry about. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, that's a weird response. And, yeah, it, like, it is. Like, there's no chance I'm going to eat you. Exactly. And he's like, I'll never do anything to harm you or Danny. And you're like, oh, fuck. He's, he's doing it. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I right. definitely, I came away from this movie thinking it's more of a, uh, uh, a metaphor for mental illness. And I think that yeah. there's that one scene where it does look like the human skull and the conflict is within and, you know, like maybe Kubrick by having these people act this way towards the beginning was trying to say that they, these people, like the real world, the people he's interacting with in the real world aren't fucking real at all. And then yeah. only thing that's really going on is really, you know, once you actually get the real acting or what you get to the, yeah. the events of the film is uh, everything that's going mm-hmm. on inside of his head. And well, something that kind of like explained 2001 for me, because I never felt like I really fully understood at the beginning. Because, like, the, the proto-human apes, like, the first tool they ever develop is a club, and then they go kill the other tribe of apes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And Which like, is like, very human. So are all, yeah, like, like uh, are apparently all it's, it's very weapons. Neanderthal. Was, Did you see that news? No. no. Oh, we, we've dated the first murder to 420,000 years ago between some uh, Neanderthals, but keep going. No, that's that really depresses me. Yeah, so it's not it's not just Homo sapiens. Keep it. All right, carry, carry on, sir. See, uh, hold on, sh- what, hold on. We need we need to write a um uh email to the producers of CSI because there probably will be a CSI Neanderthal. Now. <laughs> uh, wait, wait, wait. I want my nope, cu- nope, I want my royalties off this shit, man. Yeah. Oh um, but I mean, like anthropologists in the '60s and '70s thought all humans were intrinsically violent, and they, yeah. you know, like if we didn't have laws, we would all just murder each other within five minutes and so forth. And um, it's funny because I heard an interview about the, I think it's a woman, I'm not sure what her name is, who directed that documentary we're talking about, Room 237. And they asked her what she thought, like, what's her personal theory? And she's like, none of the theories espoused in my documentary actually speak to me, which is kind of interesting because they're still interesting theories, even if you don't believe them. 
And she was like, I think it's about a guy who has a trouble balancing his work life and family life, and it drives him insane. He goes crazy. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that, that's what I'm, I'm personally taking away from it is that, uh, it's something about the guy's descent into madness. Uh, and, yeah. and he, he works in, you know, in a very metaphorical scene, uh, as far as this film goes. All right. So I think that that's going to bring us to an end, guys. Are we, I just want to say, I think, the, I think the real conspiracy is that, uh, documentary filmmaker was trying to make some money. No. No. <laughs> There's no money to be made in that. I mean, right to that place, probably made some. <laughs> Uh, I, that's like saying he wanted no, to go into right, teaching to make very, money. Oh God! <laughs> but the very last shot of the film is is Jack Nicholson in the picture, and it's dated July fourth, nineteen twenty, whatever. Yeah, like you know, it's about the founding of the neo colonialist United uh, States. I think I'm right, but anyway, whatever. Well, when don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's, actually, that's a perfectly good point. <laughs> All right, when? Okay, I think that's about good. Are we, are we right, good? Sums us up. All yeah. right. Uh, Big D is over. Putting the dirt on that shit. Do you know how later. I knew your name was Doc? And bye. bye later. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I can remember when I was a little boy. My grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it shiny. And for a long time, I thought it was just the two of us that had to shine to us. Just like you probably thought you was the only one. But there are other folks, though mostly they don't know it or don't believe it. How long have you been able to do it? Why don't you want to talk about it? I'm not supposed to. Who says you ain't supposed to? Tony. Who's Tony? Tony is a little boy that loves my mouth. Is Tony the one that tells you things? Yes. How does he tell you things? It's like I go to sleep and he shows me things. But when I wake up, I can't remember everything. Does your mom and dad know about Tony? Yes. Do they know he tells you things? No, Tony told me never to tell him. Has Tony ever told you anything about this place? About the Overlook Hotel? I don't know. Now think real hard, Doc. Think. Maybe he showed me something. Try to think of what it was. Mr. Allen, are you scared of this place? No. Scared nothing here. It's just that, you know, some places are like people. Some shine and some don't. I 
guess you could say the Overlook Hotel here has something about it that's like shining. Is there something bad here? Well, you know, Doc, when something happens, it can leave a trace of itself behind. Say, like, if someone burns toast. Well, maybe things that happen leave other kind of traces behind. Not things that anyone can notice, but things that people who shine can see. Just like they can see things that haven't happened yet. Well, sometimes they can see things that happened a long time ago. I think a lot of things happened right here in this particular hotel over the years. And not all of them was good. What about room 237? Room 237? You're scared of room 237, ain't you? No, I ain't. Mr. Allen, what is in room 237? Nothing. There ain't nothing in room 237. But you ain't got no business going in there anyway. So stay out. You understand? Stay out. There ain't nothing in room 237. 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 There ain't nothing in room 